Hi, and welcome to Real Trail Talk. I am Donovan D'Souza from The Long Ways Better. And I'm Mark Pybus from The Life of Pi. Welcome to episode 63. This is a bit weird, me introducing the episode, Mark. Yeah. Um, first off, apologies to any listeners that use the podcast to fall asleep to Donovan's silky smooth ABC <laughs> late night voice. We've uh, had a bit of an interesting, I guess, technical challenge here because this is the first time we're going to do a phone interview. And to keep it simple, Mark's going to do the interview. So I'm just going to run the tech support side <laughs> over here. Uh, so... Mark is going to be interviewing Jess Beckerling from the WA Forest Alliance, and we'll give her a call now. Good day, Mark. How are you going? Good, Jess. How are you? Yeah, good, thank you. So welcome, Jess, to the podcast. Uh, we've been meaning to have you on for quite a while now, and we finally got a hold of you. Um, yeah, welcome to Real Trail Talk. Yeah, thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, so, just want to start off the podcast by telling us a little about yourself and also your connection with the southern forests of Western Australia. Sure. Yeah. Thanks, Mark. Well, I've um, I've lived in the forests in the southwest for most of my life. It's hard to describe my sense of connection to them. I I love them deeply, and I see them as having profound intrinsic value threaded through and overlaying the, the various specific values that we understand and can explain like water and wildlife and climate significant as they are to me their value is in their very nature uh, they are a part of this world and they have beauty and timelessness and significance beyond our explaining so I, I joined the old growth forest blockades as a politics and economics student when I was 18 and I was so enthralled by the forests and the profound nature of the threat to them and, and also by the calibre of people involved in the campaign that I set up camp and, and shortly afterwards withdrew from uni and stayed in those blockades for the next three years. And I've then stayed in the environment movement ever since, primarily focused on the forests and wildlife, but also working on climate and a, a range of other local issues. Excellent, excellent. And just on the forests, I mean, everyone enjoys going out and, and seeing them and experiencing them, but just in terms of their importance to the ecology, the rainfall cycle, the flora and the fauna that live there, can you just give us a, a bit more information on basically where they stand and why they are so important to the, the southern areas of WA? Yeah, sure. I mean, they're, they're so important down here and they're so important to the globe. And the, the Kari, Mary, Jarrah, Wandu, Chuat, Yarri, Tingle forests that grow down here in the southwest don't grow anywhere else on the planet. And they're incredibly diverse, uh, home to a huge variety of plants and animals. This part of the world has developed in isolation from other similar ecosystems over millions of years, separated by deserts and oceans uh, from other forests and woodlands. And they've also developed on these very old infertile soils and that the combination of these factors, their isolation and the very old soils has delivered these mind-blowingly complex, globally unique species and ecosystems. This is the, the forests here grow in one of the world's only 36 global biodiversity hotspots. So we're really very lucky to be able to walk around in and, and marvel at this biodiversity wonderland is, is the way that I see it. Mm, yeah, certainly, I mean, anyone that's gone down to, say, the Walpole area, I mean, you just don't get trees like the Tingles anywhere in the world. Um, I guess the nearest sort of comparison would be the uh, mountain ash in Victoria and Tassie or maybe the redwoods in the US just on terms of scale it's just mind-blowing sometimes what we have in our own backyard yeah exactly um, I've spent a lot of time walking the Bibbulmun around there that's where I've lived for the last 15 years 
and uh, those tingle forests are just second to none. And forests, they play a vital role in the water cycle. Can you outline kind of the benefits of having such a large and healthy forest um, just in terms of providing rainfall and kind of keeping a balance on the environment? Yeah, sure. So so the forests are an absolutely fundamental part of the Earth's water cycle. They make and attract rain and they also keep the land surface cool and moist by making shade and then they're looking after the river systems and, and the soil function. And through their evaporation, uh, evapotranspiration process, they're drawing water up from the ground and then releasing water vapour into the air, which is allowing the clouds to form. Sometimes if you're lucky, I'm thinking of those up forests over the river there, you can watch cloud formation coming up off the forest. It was one of my favourite sites. But as we clear the forest, this link between the ground and the air is broken and we get less rainfall and the land surface gets drier and hotter. There was a, a major study done uh, in 2012 at the UWA Water Research Centre by Andrich and Imberger that people can, um, can look up. It's online, a really excellent study. And that showed that up to 65% of the rainfall decline in the southwest of WA is a result of land clearing. So, you know, clearly global warming is changing our weather patterns and causing reduced rainfall here and in other similar climates around the world. But we can also now quantify the loss of rainfall that has resulted from land clearing. And it's clear that we can, in fact, work locally to reverse some of this damage or at least to reduce the projected further declines um, by protecting and restoring our forests. And then the other really important thing to note on the flip side of that is that um, particularly around the northern Jarrah forest where the, where the forests are having um, really si significant impacts of climate change and we saw that massive drought um, collapse in 2010-2011, the young regrowth forests up there that have been subjected to intensive logging and clearing for mining are now regrowing as, as these very young regrowth areas and they have much higher evapotranspiration rates than the old mature intact forests do. And so you've got this already reduced stream flow and then forests that are particularly thirsty, twice as thirsty um, as the old forests, and that's causing them to, to suffer this um, very um, pronounced drought stress. So this all points to the, the obvious conclusion, really, that we need to protect and maintain what's left of the old intact forests that we have, which are few and far between, and then allow the degraded forests to restore their full biological potential for climate and, and of course, biodiversity. Um, so you mentioned there some of the threats that are facing the forests. I mean, just off the top of my head, just in recent times, we've had the damming of the Donnelly River come up as an issue that may or may not go ahead. There's the continued logging of the, the old growth forests by the Forest Products Commission. Um, bauxite mining, which is kind of a an untalked about um, tragedy in WA, that it is like a cancer spreading through the, especially the northern Jarrah forests. And then you've also got large scale burning and dieback affecting the forests. Um, can you go into some detail about all of those things combining as a threat um, to the ecosystems of WA, and what can we kind of learn from those situations? Yeah, look, it's a massive issue and um, there, there are so many compounding impacts to the forests and, and no shortages of threats, unfortunately, and, and we absolutely need to maintain 
the advocacy and the on-ground work for their protection. I'd say that logging and clearing and inappropriate burning are the immediate challenges in a policy and regulation sense. And when I say clearing, I'm including there the clearing that's happening for bauxite mining that you mentioned in the northern and central Jarrah forests. But then there's also climate change, obviously, which is putting forests under immense pressure as the rainfall and temperature conditions that they're accustomed to change so rapidly relative to their evolution. And and as the forests are becoming more vulnerable from these threats every day, from the logging and clearing and burning and from these overlaying threats from climate change, um, they are less resilient to various stresses uh, like insect attack. And uh, recently there was a, a major leaf skeletonizer event a, across mostly the upper Warren carry areas where large areas of the forest were impacted. And it's it's really, as you pointed to, these compounding impacts that are possibly the greatest of the greatest concern. And, you know, we've also got dieback and mary canker and other diseases spreading through the forests. And I, I think we're totally failing that challenge by not sufficiently resourcing the scientists or educating the public or the industry. So, I mean, it, it's hard to hear for people, I, I, I'm sure, and it's hard to comprehend. But I think from, from my point of view, we have a duty to do our best in these really difficult times. And a, a big part of that is understanding what's going on and then finding our place individually and collectively in the work that needs to be done to address it. Yeah, I agree. Um, so just going more into that, um, the old growth definitions, you say that old growth is very, very important to the ecosystem. Um, in 2001, I believe it was the Gallup government started introducing sort of harsher restrictions on what couldn't be logged or what could and couldn't be logged but since that time everything's been scaled back and the forest products commissions are allowed to do a lot more and they're getting a lot more brazen with their operations um, do you see any kind of improvement in that area um, and then we'll get onto this a little bit more later but in terms of monitoring what they're doing, the general public being made aware of what's going on, do you see any big faults in what's happening to protect the forests at the moment? Yeah, it's a major issue, obviously. And I think, you know, the old growth was really the right message in the 1990s, but we've shifted so much since then. And now we really know from an ecological perspective that all of the native forests need to be protected. But we still have this old growth um, method for protecting forests and it's really one of the only pieces of regulatory framework that we can use to protect them on a case-by-case basis um, simply and and quickly. Uh, So um, it is something that we fall back on a lot but but ultimately we want to see all of the native forests protected. So in, in 2001 when the Gallup government was elected promising to protect old growth forests They used a definition that had been developed in the late 1990s in the development of the regional forest agreement process and it was deeply flawed and the community knew that it was flawed and we were calling even then for it to be corrected. What it means is that if you imagine in the carry forest, for example, that you're walking through this magnificent old carry forest with ancient carry and marry trees and hollows in the canopy for hollow dependent wildlife like cockatoos and western ringtail possums and eventually you come across one stump in that forest that might have been cut down by two dudes with a cross-cut saw 100 years ago, that one stump that you have found disqualifies two hectares of forest that you've been walking through from old growth status and it can now be clear-felled. So that's how ridiculous the old growth definition is and it's similarly problematic in the Jarrah forest but a little bit more complex. 
and in one of the issues in the JARA is that if there's any dieback in there at all, it's automatically disqualified from old growth status and can be logged, even if it's never been logged in the past. So there's these obvious, really serious problems with the old growth definition that need to be corrected, absolutely. And yes, I think, you know, you ask about whether we're making progress on that front, and we certainly are. I, I started... Um, as the convener of the WF Forest Alliance back in 2010 and the Barnett government was had just recently been elected and spent eight years just slamming my head against the wall trying to get change. And as much as we still need to see significant improvements um, on, on forest management and we're relying now on the McGowan government to really step up and listen to the community and protect these forests, the difference in the last three years has been profound and we have been able to really start building a, a lot of community support because we've been able to start um, kicking some goals in individual areas. And we recently got a 12-month freeze on the logging of all the two-tiered carry forests, which are all of those areas that missed out on the old growth definition in 2001 that had only been very lightly logged but, um, but were disqualified from old growth status. So we're making progress and we're building a, a strong and vibrant community and I'm, I'm hopeful um, even, you know, even after all these years of seeing a lot of loss that um, eventually we will protect these forests. Yeah, it was heartening to see just recently um, the logging that was planned to go ahead, was it the Dalgarup National Park or adjacent to Dalgarup? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, just um, between Bridgetown and Nanup, there was a section of the proposed Delgrup National Park was carved off the edge of that area and, and opened up for logging. Yeah, it was heartening to see the, the public really cry out. And I mean, it would have been countless thousands that contacted the minister to highlight him to this and then those operations were stopped. So it's nice to know that people power counts these days. And I guess going forward, I think more needs to happen on the, the back end political legal system to try and protect these forests in a really serious way, um, which is where the WA Forest Alliance comes in and is doing such a good job in, uh, you know, giving the, the forests a voice. Oh, thanks. I, I appreciate that. I mean, our, our power comes from the people who are with us. So um, it, it's, a, it's a team effort. So just moving on to bauxite mining, um, I just want to give this a little bit more airtime just because it is such a big issue that no one really talks about. And I mean, anyone can go to Google Maps and you can select the satellite view and you can actually see it's like a cancer. It spreads and there's this, all this cleared land. And just recently, um, Alcoa put in their submission to mine was at 6,700 more hectares around dwelling up in Jaredale and really significant areas for people who use it now for bushwalking and mountain biking. Is there something that we can do um, other than protesting and throwing our arms up to the EPA um, to try and get this kind of pushed into the, the forefront of mainstream media? Yeah, look, it's it's a massive threat and it's incredibly difficult to um, to push over because there's state agreement acts for the two major bauxite mining companies that were signed uh, last century and go out until 2038 and 2045 with the option to renew. So the, the problem is this kind of systemic issue that we have with the way that our culture views the forest as being a resource that's there for our exploitation. and ultimately what we're trying to do here with all of these conversations and with all of this regulation policy and law change is to start viewing the forests 
completely differently. We start. We need to understand um, that they have these intrinsic values far beyond our understanding and, and ability to explain and to protect them um, from, from bauxite mining, from inappropriate burning um, and, and from logging and then to get in there on the ground and start dealing with the issues and the threats that are already unfolding. The bauxite mining um, expansion now um, that Alcoa wants to see go ahead in the Dwelling Up and Geraldale areas that you've mentioned and then also South 32 further south in the Boddington area, um, this gives us a real opportunity to use the, um, the mechanisms that are set out in front of us to rally community support because ultimately we need to demonstrate to the state government that there is such powerful community concern for these forests and that people are going to passionately and persistently stand up for their protection and make it into an election issue because we know from from our history and from the from the social uh, the political movement that we can look back through the the studies that have been done that when communities rise up with sufficient force and persistence then we are able to turn these sorts of things around and that's just as true for bauxite mining as it is for anything else but it's going to take a concerted effort so we've put in our submission to the EPA and um, and we've encouraged many, many hundreds of people, I'm sure, over the last couple of days to put in their submissions as well. Um, but we're going to need to do a lot more than that because this has to reach, as you say, the the um, the halls of power because that's where it'll get turned around. Mm. And as part of your work with the WA Forest Alliance, you're not just a far left wing, everyone should be shut out of the forest and nothing should ever happen. You actually have a document that is costed and there's a strategic plan going ahead, which is the Forest for Life plan. Do you want to just run through that and kind of work through the points on how WA can transition out of native logging, which has been shown to be a loss maker for the state, and into more kind of farm forestry um, schemes like, which kind of popped up here and now and has kind of had a bit of a bad name with investors, but you think that this could be the way forward for forestry in WA? Oh yeah, totally. It's it's the way forward for forestry and for so many other um, things that interact with forestry, and <clears throat> it's a it's a really exciting plan. It's a revolution in the way that we approach this issue. It's, instead of the old combative narrative of forest versus jobs, it works to synthesise the issues and build a pathway forward um, so that we can protect the forest and also create hundreds of new jobs in the farm forestry sector. So while we're doing that, we're also going to have these local and global climate benefits and, and address a whole range of the most important local environmental issues down here, like salinity and, and water quality. And yeah, we're, we're very proud of it. We've had um, two NRM grants so far to carry out a feasibility study and then secondly to, to set out a business plan. And we're gearing up now to start attracting investors and entering into land use agreements for the farm forestry and land care component of the project. And it's... it's um, it's really a way forward for the southwest, which says, you know, we don't expect the timber workers to all move into tourism. Some of them may, but it's unrealistic to everybody who's remaining in the timber industry, about 500 people down here, that you're all going to move into tourism or horticulture. You know, a lot of those guys are trained and, and have spent their whole lives in uh, timber work and we want to be able to create jobs that are secure and um, and give people you know a sense of pride and position in that space but move them over into farm forestry and plantations because that's that's really the future of the industry. I mean already 82% of all of the wood that we use in WA 
comes from plantation. So it's not totally out of nowhere. It's a transition that's already happening. But we're saying let's speed up that transition because we can't afford to lose any more of the native forests. And instead of just waiting until there's a chaotic collapse of the native forest timber industry, which is interminable decline, anybody can see that by looking at the figures, let's get in front of it and be responsible and actually shift these people over into farm forestry and plantations. Yeah. And just on that, is this scheme, is it using existing land that is already cleared to grow trees or is there scope for, say, existing farmers who have spare patches of land that they also want to generate additional income um, for their, their property? Is there scope for that to happen? Yeah, so it's absolutely only on previously cleared land. Um, and also the, the, the fundamental difference between farm forestry and plantations is that when we talk about farm forestry, we're not talking about fence-to-fence plantations. If you imagine um, looking at a paddock that's either got a, a crop on it or it's got um, a cattle on it and uh, you you um, augmenting that existing agricultural process. So you're introducing trees into cropping or grazing and allowing that cropping or grazing to continue but augmenting it so you're creating an income diverse a, um, a new income stream for the farmers and then you're also putting shelter belts and shade and and slowing down the evaporation rates and creating some spots where the sheep or cows can move into when um, particularly for the sheep when they're lambing it really increases their lambing rates so it's it's adding another layer to the farm rather than um, stopping the farming so that you can just plant trees. It's, as I said, only on only on cleared land and we're only looking at about 3% um, of all of the cropping and grazing land in, in the southwest zone and then in the great southern zone um, needing to be taken up into this program to make it successful. Yeah, that's great to hear because you often, you drive through these areas that just have massive clearing and you see one tree out there and it's all the cows or all the sheep are under it. And I always wonder why farmers don't plant more trees just for that simple fact. And then it also retains the topsoil. You're not getting everything blown off when there's a big storm. It just makes so much more sense and you just wonder why it hasn't happened so far. Yeah, yeah. There's a, a lot of scope to be improving agricultural processes as well, I'm sure. And the Forest for Life plan, does has this taken into account any increase in job numbers in, say, like the tourism industry, food production? So a lot of, I know, beekeepers are, are relying on the southern forests. Has that been scoped out or is that just going to be additional benefit to this plan coming into place? Uh, yeah, we're working with tourism um, operators and, and beekeepers on that. And there's a one particular story that's really worth telling that you might you might even want to follow up with with a, a, a guy called Mikey Chinotta who's in Pemberton. He's a honey producer, and the forest right next to him is currently being clearfelled. And he says that he's losing a million dollars just from that small crop of carry honey that he would have been able to produce over the next 40 years because it takes a minimum of 40 years for the carry trees to reach a maturity where they're able to start producing that kind of crop of honey again. Um, and so that, you know, there are issues and, and environmentalists listening to this will will know that there's been issues historically with um, European bees becoming feral and then moving into hollows and having an impact on the all the hollow dependent fauna that we really need to, to be providing more habitat for rather than losing what we already have. And um, and this this um, this story is is really important in that space because he describes 
the really ecologically responsible approach that he takes to honey production to ensure that that isn't happening. So there are ways that we can be um, advancing and supporting these enterprises like tourism, recreation, honey production um, in the forests in a way that doesn't have these really intense negative detrimental impacts on the forest ecosystems but allows people to still be able to maintain a, a livelihood and, and build these sustainable enterprises. And that's something that we need to look at on a case-by-case -case basis and work with with those individuals to develop. But it's a, it's a real opportunity for the Southwest if instead of cutting down these forests and selling them for such low value products. You know, the native forest timber industry actually operates at a loss. Um, we can be keeping them standing and also finding ways to, in an ecologically responsible way, to be supporting these enterprises to, to build um, the, the economies in the Southwest. Yeah, I guess it's just that case of breaking down the traditional jobs in the area that then become political uh, politicised a lot more because they're trying to appease that particular voter group whereas there is this future here where everyone can benefit and we don't need to destroy the environment um, and certainly Mike's case is very sad I've been following his impassioned pleas for that bit of carry forest to remain but I think unfortunately it has been clear felled hasn't it yeah a part of it has but um, there, there's a whole lot more planned over the next three years in his immediate area so he's really hoping that um, he's going to be able to you know work to protect at least a part of it mm, yeah because I stayed in that area I think it was Whispering Woods um, a couple run that um, farm stay there and they're completely surrounded by carry forests and it's in an area where they're clear felling and it's just it's going to affect them as well because what people come out for is to spend some time in nature and have the forests around them but if that's not there then what's really the value in that um, experience for them which is really heartbreaking yeah absolutely yeah um so as kind of head of the WA Forest Alliance if people are listening to this and they really want to help out apart from monetary donations which are always appreciated what can people do to get on board and really make a difference rather than kind of sit back and watch all this happen oh look it's it's such a moving feast and it's building and growing all the time so the the best thing that people can do is is join our community one way or another so I'd really encourage everybody who's on Facebook to follow us there. The WA Forest Alliance is the, the name of that page because that's where you'll get all of the most regular updates and information about exactly what's happening across the Southwest and at, a, on, at any particular threat, what you can do to support us. And we're really kicking goals through those processes. So that's the place to, to join in. Um, if you're not on Facebook, then um, join our mailing list. So you can go to the forestsforlife.org.au website and subscribe there and then you'll be on our mailing list and you'll get emails and, and regular updates. Um, and I'm always happy to take calls from anybody who wants to ring and have a chat about something that's happening in their particular area or skill or capability that you want to contribute to the campaign. Um, feel free to give me a call. I'd I love to, to take those calls and help you join in one way or another. And my phone number is up on the Forest for Life website as well. Excellent, because I know a lot of people kind of watch this happen and feel really powerless, but there is something you can do, even if you are at home emailing ministers, getting on the phone, demanding action, because in the end, it's people power that's going to get this through, along with some uh, very dedicated individuals like yourself um, pushing through some solutions. 
Yeah, that's spot on. And and we do, we, we ask people to, to email the ministers or to do various different things, most recently to put in submissions to the EPA. There's a lot of different levers and avenues that we'll ask you to, to follow. And, and when we do it en masse, we do um, find ways to protect forests. So I really encourage everybody to join in. Yep. Um, definitely we'll be sharing the WA Forest Alliance page through our normal social media channels. And I do encourage everyone to give it a follow and interact and basically give a damn about the environment because it is something that we are losing very quickly and I think there's a tipping point coming soon where we may lose the ability to reverse what's happened and that's going to be a very sad moment. Yeah, and there's a lot of precious places down here that are going to help us to, to get through that and, and help many of the, the other species that we share this planet to get through that. So we've got to protect as many of them as we possibly can. Yeah. I agree. All right. Thanks, Jess, for, for phoning in and having this conversation. I think it's a really important one that we've had. And best of luck with all of the work that you're doing down there. Thank you so much. And to you too. And, and yeah, I really appreciate the work that you do. And thanks for getting in touch. Thank you. So that was Jess Beckerling from the WA Forest Alliance. And we'll put up some links on the website for those who are interested in getting involved. Yeah, I think we'll put a series up, just for maybe even a how-to guide um, with Jess's help, just to, if you want to help out, what to do. Yeah. Because um, it's really important that people drive this, not just Jess and a few individuals. It's everyone's responsibility. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think, you know, what she said about, you know, the old growth definition, um, it's really terrible like i mean a, a bit of a preview of what's going to come up soon in the mundabidi is there's a section that i went through that's just state forest mm. but the trees there are basically king jarrahs um and they're not really that protected yeah i mean just looking at the the bauxite expansion the map that they've done it's the last section of the um, billman going into dwelling up with mm -hmm. all the really nice old growth forest either side of that railway mm that's going to be missed entirely um they think they're crossing albany highway into mondanox yep so pretty much from the top of mount vince and mount cuspet you'll be able to look right down into what they're stripping out yep it's and in the last episode the mundabitty bit that goes into jaredale yeah that too is is part in of the, the bauxite yeah. mining which is you know that's one of the nicest parts and yeah you know it's just it's crazy that that that's uh you know, so, so they have <laughs> legal right to do that and it's just i really hope that this gets through and the people power works because a message needs to be sent that just no more yeah like, the environment has to have some value yeah and it has to be better than mining for low-grade bauxite yeah and you and you know if you're going to be impacting the outdoor areas that you're supposedly, uh, you know, having world-class trails through. Mm. Um, you know, these are these are places that have been earmarked to be world-class trail towns. Mm. You can't have a massive bauxite mine scar right through the middle of the trail. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, it's all so. on everyone, <laughs> including <laughs> us, to to make sure that you know the right processes are followed and at least our voices are heard. Exactly. Thank you everyone for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode or any other episode of Real Trail Talk, then please rate us on whatever platform you're currently listening to us on. Ratings really help for us to reach an audience and for people who maybe are looking to learn about the outdoors in Western Australia and Australia in general. 
If you had any questions or any suggestions for future episodes, uh, you can email us at realtrailtalk at gmail.com or you can contact us through our social media channels. Thank you for listening and we'll be back in two weeks. Bye.